Have you ever been told you're not really pro-life? Unless you're speaking out against every other leftist outrage issue, <laughs> I'm sure you have. Well, we're going to put this ridiculous myth to rest once and for all. Today we're going to do a special episode and I'm going to read you a piece I wrote for the Christian Research Journal last year entitled, You're not really pro-life unless you oppose abortion. That's it. <laughs> and we'll provide the text of this episode to you as well so you can demolish this silly argument against pro-lifers. Here we go. I'm Seth Gruber and this is Unaborted. Thanks for tuning in to Unaborted this week. Hey, if you haven't given the show a rating and review yet, please do that. It really helps us reach more people. As I've been telling you recently, we have been within the top 60, 70 of the news commentary category for audio podcasts. This is pretty incredible for such a niche topic as we do here. Everyone tunes their ears off and plugs them when they hear the word abortion. So we're reaching more and more people and your ratings and review help us move up the ranks and more people will see this show when they're listening to related content so we can change minds, change hearts, save lives, and equip the next generation to end the genocide of abortion. So go ahead and do that. Leave five stars. Leave us a review. Let us know what you think. We really appreciate it. So I'm going to read to you today a piece I wrote for the Christian Research Journal last year, as I mentioned. And I think this is an important topic because we're hearing this more and more right now within the pro-life movement and particularly within American evangelicalism, uh, particularly the left side of evangelicalism, people who call themselves sort of social justice Christians, right, or Christian leftists who try to syncretize their faith with other sort of leftist virtues, quote-unquote virtues, that have no relation to a Christian worldview. And so we really need to put this to rest. And the reason is because it's actually quite dangerous, is because we had a lot of whole life evangelicals for Biden who voted for Biden because they believed that while they were personally pro-life, they had to be whole life. They had to apply their pro-life beliefs to more than just abortion. They don't believe the term pro-life only applies to the lives of the unborn. They believe it must apply to every issue that can be tangentially related to the word life. And this actually has consequences. And so I'm going to read to you today this article that I wrote. And we're just going to provide this episode to you, this, the script, the text to you as well, to be able to read, uh, share with your friends as a blog post, as well as an audio content. And we'll cut this up to really reach a lot of these Christian young people who are adopting this myth and redefinition of pro-life. And we're going to get into why that has consequences. So the end it movement is not really pro-freedom. The movement that says they fight to end slavery and human trafficking worldwide is virtually silent on abortion, homophobia, police brutality, and unjust immigration laws. You can't be pro-freedom while also picking and choosing whose freedom is worth fighting for. What about the poor, the unborn, people of color, and refugees seeking safety in America? Do their lives not matter to the end it movement? Apparently not. Being pro-freedom is about more than just being anti-slavery. It's about supporting the freedom and worth of all lives, not just the ones being enslaved. <laughs> now, I hope you didn't take this silly accusation seriously, and I certainly hope you weren't persuaded by it. However, replace the phrase end it with pro-life, and this accusation would magically transform into a persuasive piece of rhetoric parroted by human rights activists, religious leaders, and politicians. Now, my satirical critiques of the End It movement are incredibly disingenuous, right? In reality, I am very glad this movement has a singular mission. 
While members of the End It movement almost assuredly stand against racism, homophobia, and police brutality, they have chosen to devote their lives and careers to ending slavery. How will burdening them with solving countless other injustices enable them to end the one that they have chosen to focus on? As Frederick the Great allegedly said, he who attacks everywhere attacks nowhere. One might also remind my satirical self that the phrase end it is not referring to ending all forms of injustice, who could reasonably accomplish such a task, rather it specifically refers to ending slavery and human trafficking. The same holds true for the pro-life movement. Over the last decade, it has become popular to say, you're not really pro-life unless, right? And then fill in the blank. With some responsibility or requirement, the critic demands the pro-life movement or individual must meet in order to be worthy of the pro-life title. This accusation has been levied against the pro-life movement by our enemies for a long time, but now it is being repeated by those who claim to be our allies. In each case, their selective application of this rule, this rule that individuals and movements must advocate for all life and fight all injustice, gives away the game. You see, by only levying such accusations against the pro-life movement, they prove that they either don't see the pro-life movement as all that great, or they don't see abortion as all that bad, or both. Could, consider these analogous examples, okay? Could the, you're not really pro-life unless, critics, honestly answer yes to these following questions? Ready? Was Oscar Schindler not really anti-Holocaust? Because, you know, he only focused his energy and wealth on saving Jews. What a bigot. <laughs> Were abolitionists not truly anti-slavery? Because they only sought to abolish one type of evil. Those narrow-minded bigots. <laughs> Is the international justice mission Lacking in justice for only working to establish justice for slaves? I guess so. Obviously, it would be fundamentally unserious to answer yes to any of these questions. Likewise, I would propose that it is an equally unserious position to suggest that the pro-life movement and the people in it are not really pro-life unless they're advocating for and defending all lives. Now, our critics argue that the word life in the term pro-life is intentionally broad in order to include all life. But this is incredibly cynical, right? Because everyone knows that when asked whether they're pro-life or pro-choice, they're being asked whether they are for or against abortion. We all know this. They're not being asked whether they're for all choices or against all lives. But these quote-unquote whole life proponents criticize the pro-life movement for our narrow-minded commitment to making abortion illegal and unthinkable, insisting that being pro-life means not getting to choose which life you will stand for and protect. <laughs> Yet missing from all of their critiques is what they would have us do in the real world to deserve wearing this new pro-life label, right? Should pro-life advocates fight sex trafficking on Monday, work for police reform on Tuesday, volunteer at a soup kitchen on Wednesday, lobby for a living wage on Thursday, and then fight abortion on Friday? But still, other whole-life advocates openly uh, wonder about the silence of the pro-life movement when a national debate erupts over either a real or contrived injustice, right? Anything from a suspected racially motivated shooting 
to children being separated from their parents at the southern border, even to the debate over universal health care. If it's an issue that the whole life progressive can tangentially relate to the word life, then the pro-life movement will be attacked and accused as frauds with a fetus obsession whose compassion, the self-important John Pavlovitz writes, has, quote, a nine-month expiration date. Now, it goes without saying that no other organization or movement is slandered in this way. The International Justice Movement, NDIT, Invisible Children, the American Cancer Society, Susan G. Komen, and hundreds more, all with a very narrowly defined mission, somehow escape these criticisms of whole-life progressives. Despite the unfair accusations hurled by our critics, the pro-life movement is incredibly generous and committed to the life of children and families even after birth, boasting nearly 2,800 pregnancy center locations around the country, almost entirely funded through private donations. These clinics outnumber the 1,800 abortion clinics, many of whom rely on federal funding. These nonprofit pregnancy centers provide free ultrasounds, free STD testing, abortion alternatives, parenting classes, skill building courses, baby clothes, diapers, and in many instances, even free housing. According to the Philanthropy Roundtable, the most generous Americans are conservative religious individuals. Uh, that would be the majority of the pro-life movement with a moderate income. <clears throat> now, a movement comprised largely of Protestants and Catholics, the individuals in the pro-life movement both believe and practice what Scott Klusendorf calls a broad and inclusive ethic. But it does not follow that the operational objectives of the pro-life movement must be broad and inclusive as well. Unfortunately, this painfully obvious point is lost on woke pastors like Eugene Cho, who is personally opposed to abortion but supports keeping it legal, <laughs> and insists that being pro-life means the following. And here's what Eugene Cho wrote a couple years ago <clears throat> on being whole life. He said, not just American lives, but Syrian lives. Not just Christian lives, but Muslim lives. To be pro-all life is to acknowledge the systemic injustice that operates against indigenous and black and brown folks in our culture. To be pro-all life is to be broken by LGBTQ youth that are three to four times more likely to attempt suicide. And the list goes on. Pro-life should not just be an anti-abortion conviction. It is so much more. We have to reduce the demand for abortion. We must come along the poor and low-income women. We must come alongside single mothers. We must engage and support those called to foster care and adoption. Now, Eugene Cho is living in a fantasy land. If he honestly believes the pro-life movement can successfully shoulder his job description for us. <clears throat> Imagine telling abolitionists in the 1850s that they aren't really opposed to the illegal enslavement and brutalization of African Americans even while they spend all day seeking its abolition. Because, you know, being an abolitionist means more than just a singular focus on freeing the slaves. <laughs> Not just African American lives, but slaveholders' lives too. Not just African-Americans, but indigenous Africans, too. Abolitionism should not just be an anti-slavery conviction. It is so much more. Abolitionists have to address the underlying causes that lead plantation owners to purchase black men and women in the first place. They must come alongside poor plantation owners whose income will be devastated if they have to free their slaves. <laughs> This is what Eugene Cho levies against the pro-life movement. If the abolitionist movement had taken the advice and demands of today's 
whole life progressive seriously, the abolitionist movement would have collapsed in on itself and perhaps extended the horrific practice many decades. Abolishing an evil that had been practiced around the world in nearly every society for many thousands of years was a large enough challenge without demanding that abolitionists assume responsibility for a cornucopia of other societal ills. Why should it be any different today for today's abolitionists in the pro-life movement? In fact, from a pure body count calculation, abortion in America has taken far more lives than slavery ever did. Abortion is arguably the greatest human rights violation in human history, with 63 million murdered preborn children in America since 1973, and well over 1.5 billion children killed worldwide since 1980. If state-sanctioned killing of these numbers doesn't justify a movement devoting all its time and resources towards bringing about its end, it's hard to imagine what injustice whole life advocates would find evil enough to justify a single mission movement. If these consistent life ethic proponents had their way, the pro-life movement's goal to end the legally state-sanctioned slaughter of little humans in their mother's wombs would become nearly unachievable. Many more babies would be killed while their only defenders willingly abandoned their post to pursue justice for all people, none of whom it is currently legal to kill. Along with Hadley Arcus, I can't help but wonder, in regards to the supposed allies of the pro-life movement, quote, whether the issue did not come down to this, that in their heart of hearts, some of our quote-unquote friends really were not possessed of a lively sense that there were real human beings getting killed in these surgeries. Why else would they seek to fragment the only movement committed to the preborn's protection? Now, some whole life advocates, such as Russell Moore, admit that the selective application of this rule to the pro-life movement is unreasonable. And he even says that, quote, we don't have to share a comprehensive program on everything in order to be a pro-life movement. But then he immediately flips and asks in an article recently, quote, why isn't the pro-life movement committed to the whole person? <laughs> this is tantamount to asking Oscar Schindler why after saving 1,200 Jews from the Holocaust, he didn't exhaust his, that, that he exhausted his net worth doing, right? Why he didn't help provide housing, schools, mental health sessions, daycares for single parents, and universal health care for those who survived. Ridiculous. Today, there is only one class of human beings in this country that have been denied the right to life. And re-enshrining that right is both a worthy and a gargantuan goal, whose success will be determined by the commitment of its advocates. Demanding that the pro-life movement commit themselves to the whole person will only dilute organizational resources away from saving babies whose lives are being targeted, particularly when, as John Enzer points out, quote, many of these other issues already have personnel and resources that dwarf those of dedicated pro-life organizations. Pretending that quality of life outside the womb is morally equivalent to protection of life in the womb is outrageous. And as Scott Klusendor points out, attacking pro-lifers as hypocrites for not exhausting their scarce resources, fighting every injustice imaginable, is more outrageous still. Working to increase quality of life outside the womb is an honorable calling, but far more important is securing the first and most important of all rights for those who don't have it and cannot work to secure it.
life for the unborn. Now, Abraham Lincoln understood the importance of a singular focus, right? He knew that while there were many worthy causes to pursue, slavery took the dominant position in American life. Now, there were two reasons for this. First, slavery was an order of evil unlike any other at the time, right? It represented the grossest inversion of the natural order that all men are created equal, meaning that no man is by nature the ruler of other men in the way that men are by nature the ruler of dogs and horses and God was by nature the ruler of men. In a Judeo-Christian society that understood that people to be image bearers of God, slavery was both an affront to the victims who bore intrinsic dignity and to the God who created them. Secondly, slavery could not be tolerated because of the threat that it represented to natural rights, which, remember, provided the foundation for self-government. Lincoln understood that in accepting the institution of slavery and the premises that made it plausible in the first place, namely that not all human beings are created equal, our republic would be putting in place the premises that justified our own enslavement because in allowing some people the right to decide who are truly people or not, America was rejecting this idea of natural rights, therefore converting all rights into rights of positive law, rights that come from government. Lincoln understood that in eradicating slavery and ensuring that the promises of the, de of the Declaration were granted to the slaves, he was further enshrining freedom for all people. You see, Lincoln grasped what all our founders took as self-evident, that as long as a pure majority could create or deny rights to some people, there could be no natural rights that apply to all people. By grounding natural rights in our shared human nature, not only was Lincoln eradicating the premises of slavery, but he was also establishing this idea of human equality, right? And Lincoln communicated all of this in one sentence, speaking before Congress on December 1st, 1862, saying, in giving freedom to the slave, we assure freedom to the free. As slavery was a litmus test of our republic in the 19th century, so is abortion today. Abortion is evil for the same reasons that slavery is evil, right? It denies the personhood of its victims to justify their mistreatment. If the abolitionists of slavery were justified in their narrow-minded focus of ending slavery for its affront to human dignity and its threat to natural rights and self-government, the abolitionists of abortion are more than justified in doing the same for the same reasons. Any critiques to the contrary prove that such critics either don't believe the unborn to be fully human, or if they do, they don't believe abortion to be a morally equivalent evil to slavery, simply proving they were never with us in the first place. Just as being an abolitionist only required that you oppose slavery and seek its abolition, being pro-life only requires that you oppose abortion and seek its abolition. That's it. And as my friend and fellow pro-life advocate Mark Newman has said, quote, individuals and organizations that make it their exclusive mission to save these human beings from a culture hell-bent on butchering them have nothing to apologize for. They don't need additional causes. They need additional support. Amen. 
That is my article entitled, You're Not Really Pro-Life Unless You Oppose Abortion. That's it. So thanks for joining the show today. Head on over to iTunes and YouTube. Give this show a rating and review. It really helps us reach more people. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com to sign up for my newsletter, to see my speaking schedule, and to get more information. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. We'll